Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. When I was 14, my father was stationed in Japan. I went rock climbing with this kid from school. He fell, got injured, and I had to bring him to the hospital. We came in through the wrong entrance, passed this guy in the hall. It's a janitor. My friend came down with an infection, and doctors didn't know what to do. So they brought in the janitor. He was a doctor. And a Baraku, one of Japan's untouchables. His ancestors had been slaughterers, grave diggers. And this guy, he knew that he wasn't accepted by the staff, didn't even try. He didn't dress well. He didn't pretend to be one of them. The people that ran that place didn't think that he had anything they wanted. Except when they needed him. Because he was right meant that nothing else mattered. And they had to listen to him. Travis, you've been the, the voice of this pathological life thus far, and in this episode we're getting people's stories of their start in the medical world, the pathological world, and, and things that have affected them along the way. When did you begin this journey? To be honest, when I was going through medical school, what I kept on finding was I would always go to the pathology textbooks to find out what was going on. So when you had a, a disease or a process, I would often find that the the region that had the answers was pathology. So even sometimes physiology, you would go to the book and say, okay, we've got measurements here, but then you would go to the pathology book to learn the understanding. And and that was why, you know, pathology was sort of my, the textbook that I was go to. And so that's what I found. It was about the understanding. It was the textbook. Uh, and from there, what I, what I learned was uh, pathology was just the most interesting part for, for me. Uh, and then also because it was a diagnostic challenge, the, the challenge to, to look at something and work out what's going on or read something. Do you remember a moment along your journey at any point, whether you were still a student or uh, moving into practice, that stays with you to this day of uh, just one of those things? Look, to be honest, I probably went into medicine naive. Uh, if, if I'm honest, I, I thought, you know, you'd go in, you would help everyone. Everyone wanted your help. Everyone wanted to get better. Sometimes when you get into an area, um, it's not exactly what you expected. Uh, I remember, like, I felt like, now that's not necessarily true, but what I felt is that I helped a handful of people in my internship. Uh, and that sounds really weird, but this, like, I made a difference in one year about, you know, four or five people's life. I mean, there was one time when I remember there's, a, there's always the, you know, the ward wars, if you talk about it. It's about who, who has looking after this patient or what, because hospitals are hard. And so, like, the more people you have to look after, the more IV drips, the more medication charts, it's a hard job. And so working out where someone was. But I remember there was a, an elderly lady who was, uh, she was just a, a sweet old lady. 
uh, and but she had metastatic disease of unknown origin. And we didn't know where it was from, so she would often go over to the surgeons and they would sort of go and do a biopsy, then come back, uh, you know, under the surgery, then come back. And I was working in Gen Med at the time. And it was... She was really nice and I just kept on checking in on her because, you know, you, you didn't know sometimes where patients was. The nicest thing I did for her was I went and got her some ice. She couldn't have anything orally because she was having these biopsies done. And she was like a toddler with a little cup of ice, like I'd given her ice cream. And just because the it was just something wet, she could enjoy Like she just enjoyed. Now, unfortunately, with, with metastatic disease of unknown origin, the prognosis is always terrible. And, and she died a few days later. But there was just a moment, there was a connection. I was just able to help her. And that, that for me was one of those times where you sit there and just go, that was just an experience that I'll remember. <laughs> or have you ever been pushed to almost breaking and, and had to come through? No, no, internship. Um, I started internship uh, in a, a very busy unit, uh, which was hepatobiliary. And uh, honestly, if, if I'm honest, uh, when I got home, there'd be times when I'd just get home and cry just because you had lots of Lots of patients. It was very busy. You'd, I didn't know the hospital at the time, so even just ordering MRIs and uh, X-rays and CTs, you had to find out how to do it. Uh, I, I was from interstate at that time, and I worked in Melbourne, and so I didn't know really anyone, and it was just incredibly stressful. Uh, my wife had to support me through that. Uh, it, it was just you, you learn it, but... Uh, internship and resident are really hard because people say you're a doctor but you're pretty much a, doc a, a probationary doctor uh, and you start to become very aware of what you don't know and that's really unsettling particularly if you're on night shifts where you're it you know and then you don't realize the resources there's usually a medical registrar somewhere but if you don't know their number or you didn't know they're about you know or you, you feel like it's all on you when it's not there is a system there but you have to learn that so you know the the medical system is hard to navigate at the uh, <laughs> even when you know the system uh you know i, I remember in my second year as a, as a resident you'd be at nights and you'd be looking after six surgical wards uh, and that included things like cardiothoracics and neurosurgery, which the patients can be so sick. Uh, and you're not really familiar with the procedures, so you don't know what normal. So, I mean, the, the best advice I can ever give a doctor is when you're about to do either a night shift, go to the ward and ask the nurses, who are the sickest patients? Who are the ones you're worried about? And then look at them, go and have a look and see, because then you get a baseline, because when you go and see a patient and they're saying they're really bad, you have no gauge of how bad they were. Now, if you've seen them before, you actually know, oh, they've you know, dropped really bad. If they look the same as before, then you can actually say, no, I've seen their obs. And, and, and that was the thing, we you know, used to put uh, sheets uh, on each ward 
so that nurses could write down just little tasks like IV drip or fluid order or anything like that. So you didn't get paged every two seconds because you'd have to go down to ED and do an admission and then jump back because they said IV fluid, which isn't essential but still needed to be done. So you would actually put a, you know, a piece of paper on the ward. You'd go talk to the nurses and say, if you need anything, and then you just keep on crossing them off and you go to the next ward and cross that one off. And then if something urgent happens, you've already been on you know, ward three. So you know that Mr. Johnson looked terrible before, now looks really terrible terrible uh you know i had to learn the difference between a met call and a blue uh code blue so code blue needs an anesthetist a met call calls up the icu uh, just learn the codes code gray and code blacks again all of these are it's a very steep steep learning curve and i found it incredibly stressful i i must admit i if i hadn't gotten to pathology i don't know where i would have been my other story so i was uh, a resident, I was working at Peter McCallum Cancer Institute uh, doing a haematology rotation. And we had uh, an older lady come in. Now, her, well, let's call her Margaret. She was from country Victoria. So it wasn't just a shovel, it was a bloody shovel. And if it, well, it might have even been something a little bit worse, if, if you get my meaning. And she had a, a lump on her leg uh, that had been growing for a few years. And Turned out when they biopsied it, it was a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, so a lymphoma that needed treatment. And she had come into the Cancer Institute for treatment. And look, she was just a really down-to-earth, you know, called everyone love or their first name, which was, as I say, I always enjoyed. Uh, even even consultants, so, you know. And so, but it was one of those ones where she was going through chemotherapy uh, and look, when you're going through chemotherapy, it's a bit of a rough ride at the best of times. Uh, and, you know, patients would often wear, uh, they would have to wear pretty much nappies uh, because you can get gastrointestinal symptoms and unfortunately get that. Now, most people hide that. She would wear them as pants effectively with just a T-shirt on and just walk around, wow. which was just, you know. But then her son, you know, one day brought in a, uh, you know, uh, six six donuts with, you know, chocolate icing on them. Most people try and eat really healthy when they're going there. It's like, nah, you know, I'm, you know, I know where I'm going, so, you know, might as well enjoy it. Uh, but this time what had happened is a little bit later after she'd had one of the donuts, she looked down and, you know, a whole dollop of brown icing had, you know, fallen onto her toe. And she's gone, oh, no, I've had a blowout. Uh, and uh you know moments later she no 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 it's all right it's all right it was just icing uh and it's uh, it just it's just one of those times where just people still being people it made me laugh and and she was just a really uh, fun patient Let's continue hearing more of the formative stories from people here at ClinPath and uh, consultant anatomical pathologist, uh, Dr. Suchitra Summers is with us. Suchitra, thank you. Thank you for having me here today. When did your journey in medicine begin? I started medicine straight out of high school. I always thought I wanted to be a doctor from a young age and I was fortunate enough to do well enough at school 
got into university and made some lovely friends along the way. And then I sort of drifted into a few different areas, including general practice. And a couple of friends were doing pathology and they told me, oh, Suchetra, you should do pathology. Don't do general practice, do pathology. And I ended up continuing with it and really enjoying it. How do you contrast the two? The, the GP role versus the pathology role? Is it just the fact that you're not in front of a patient here, but everything else is the same? Or how do you put that into words? Certainly in the laboratory, you don't have as much patient contact. But I think communication is a really important part of the job. It's our role to communicate what the pertinent issues are for the patient. So we still get to maintain contact with people through communication. If you're at a dinner party, maybe we're prodding you about your past in this field or various fields. What are some of the stories that are well-worn that you roll out uh, when when you're just nudged that little bit further? Well, one story comes to mind and it about a time when I was working as a pathology trainee at the Women's and Children's Hospital. And when you're training, you're training with other people in their various specialties. So part of our role is to examine specimens which come into the laboratory that have been removed at the time of surgery. So I was in the cut-up room examining a specimen that had come from surgery and I had an obstetrics and gynaecology trainee with me. In his training, he had to observe what happened in the pathology department so he could understand what happens with a specimen when it's removed in theatre and then goes to the pathology laboratory. So I went through the normal process of reading the request form, reading the name on the specimen container, and then pulling out the specimen to describe it. And then he looked at it and he said, oh, what's that? And I said, it's a cervix. Now, I would have presumed (laughs) that someone in that field would have known what a cervix looked like. Anyway, hopefully by now, he, he can identify the cervix. <laughs> what was it that swung you away from general practice to pathology? Is there, is there something that you didn't like about general practice or is there some, or something that attracted you to pathology? I came across new challenges in the laboratory and I think I found that quite stimulating There's a lot of problem solving in the laboratory. Okay, they've gotten to this point where they have to remove something or take a biopsy and the clinicians don't know the answer and then I can see it under the microscope and I've got the answer and I can tell that doctor who's looking after the patient and that really helps the patient. So you're good at puzzle games as well when you're off duty? I think I like to be a problem solver, yes. (laughs) Find a way to do something, definitely. We're joined now by Dr. Nicole Sladden, anatomical pathologist. Nicole, we're curious about what led you into the field of medicine and what sort of formative stories or or memories uh, are stirred up as you think back to those early days. 
Thanks, Steve. Um, If I was giving the synopsis, I chose medicine when I was eight years old because I'd watched a lot of MASH and I, and I thought that the doctors had a really amazing job, although I didn't want to uh, be in the middle of a war zone. I was equally drawn to um, medicine as a career because I realised that it was mostly an indoor job and I didn't like being outside. <laughs> um sad but true. But it's good to be honest about these things because there are potential medical students listening to this, engaging Mm. uh, direction for them. So inside that interventionary aspect, I suppose, where you can step in and and help rescue someone, is that part of the... Certainly the idea of helping, although if you think about MASH, it's not really a show that's about wonderful surgical technique, is it? It's about being a human in an unusual situation, in a challenging situation. And problem solving. Yeah. Under pressure. Yeah. Mm. Why anatomical pathology? What was it that sent you down that pathway? So I was always planning to be a physician. I loved the nuance and the detail and the patient care. Uh, And at the end of medical school, I had this six-week rotation that I hadn't really selected, but they'd given me anyway, in anatomical pathology. And I walked in and it it was like another world that I hadn't known existed. People were genuinely happy doing the work that they were doing. And they were supportive of each other while they did it. And in addition to that, um, the work that they were doing was nuanced and detailed and patient-focused, and I fell in love with it. Um, So I had to give up on physician training as as an idea uh, and do a really sharp left turn towards anatomical pathology. There must have been some sort of gestalt moment or some aha where the coins dropped and you, you had that calling. Can you recall anything in particular? Uh, it, look, it was about two weeks in. I remember there was a there was a, a junior registrar who is now a, a colleague and friend, who had taken me under her wing and and gave me a, a case to look at and said, "See if you can figure out what that is." Uh, so I put the slide under the microscope and I saw skin, and then right next to the skin I saw respiratory mucosa. Those things are not meant to go together. Lung and lung and skin are generally not seen in the same place. And there was fat and there was a little bit of what in retrospect was, was brain tissue. And she said, oh, we're, we're in the gynecological tract. Uh, and what she was showing me was a dermoid cyst, the commonest um, tumour of the ovary. Um, and it's a tumour that's um, born of the pluripotent stem cells of the follicles of, that are native to the ovary. And it differentiates towards all of the tissues in the body. And it was a thing of beauty, and I thought, oh, no, I don't want to do this. I'm going to be a physician. I don't want to do this. But I thought, how could I not? Final thought for anyone who is embarking on a path of study in the field of medicine. I would say let's be a bit more open-minded about the area that you think you might fit in. Try, try more of them before you make your decision. Because it might find you. Indeed. Kid comes in with an unexploded grenade that's been shot into his body. Something they neglected to tell us about in med school. The procedure is simple. You operate on a human time bomb while your life flashes in front of you and you promise God anything he wants if he'll keep your patient from blowing up in your face. It must be an easier way for a surgeon to make $413.50 a month. There are many pathways on the way to ClinPath, and we're hearing different stories. We have some now with our consultant 
anatomical pathologist Adam Swalling. Adam, welcome. Hi. When did your medical journey begin? Well, my journey in healthcare started um, quite some time ago. I've had a bit of a potted history coming into into medicine. I my undergraduate degree was in podiatry, and I worked as a podiatrist for a couple of years before I um, was looking for something more satisfying to do. And then I um, was lucky enough to get a job with SA Ambulance Service and work as a paramedic for a period of ten years. And um, whilst doing that, I um, went back and studied medicine, and initially started off doing general practice training for a couple of years and then landed in anatomical pathology, trained through the public system here and then uh, have been at Climpath for the last couple of years. Wow, that is quite a potted history with the first steps in podiatry, I note, and then you've made your way this way. Let's go back. There's got to be some stories that just haunt you or stay with you to this day? What are some of the, the fond ones or the, the ones that tested you that you can recall? One of the best parts of being a, a medical student or junior doctor is some of the opportunities that it exposes you to that you wouldn't normally have without without being in medical school. And I was lucky enough to take a six-week uh, elective rotation in Port Vila Hospital in Vanuatu, um, which was just a, a wonderfully um, eye-opening and enriching experience for me. Um, I'd holidayed there previously and um, it always wondered about what it would be like working there even as a medical student so um, yeah I was really lucky to have that opportunity in, in 2010. So in Port Vila is there anything that came across your your uh, purview as you were there that perhaps aren't typical here in Australia? Absolutely um, I mean it was such an enriching clinical experience as well as a, um, on an emotional level as well. You learn about so much pathology and and disease progression in textbooks and from lectures but often in in Australia we don't see a lot of that advanced disease anymore because our screening and detection um, picks things up earlier and and, one of the things that was quite striking was the prevalence of of heart disease and like congenital heart disease with heart murmurs and disease presenting like cancer or tumours for example a a renal or kidney tumour that are so large you could feel it on the patient's abdomen on the front of their their body rather than you know being picked up with a CT scan only perhaps months into the disease process very sad very eye-opening and amazing all at the same time because surely that late notice affects the prognosis doesn't it Absolutely, absolutely, and the management, and I think in a third world country like like Vanuatu, where they don't have the economic ability to have screening programs, and I mean, I think just the, just the nature of the country itself, it's about three hundred small islands spread out over 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 a thousand kilometres, I think, and um, just to have two central hospitals, one in Santo and one in Port Vila, just creates huge logistical issues as well, yeah. So for, for you, though, because one thing I, I marvel about with people in the medical fraternity is you have to maintain your, your poise through what can be gruelling experiences. Did you learn any coping mechanisms from that time in Vanuatu that have stayed with you throughout? Because that would have been quite an affront to anyone's emotional resilience, I would have thought. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'd had quite a bit of experience to um, some uh, difficult situations through my work as a paramedic. You see people at your worst, in, in, at their worst in that, in that line, often when their family have just passed away and things. So you know, I thought I was quite prepared for some of that. But, I mean, yeah, in short, I, I wasn't, and it was quite difficult to see. But, I, you know, one memory that sticks in my mind is this... this um, young, oh, I would have been six or seven year old boy um, in 
who'd fallen into a fire and had significant burns on his back. And I remember doing the surgical ward round with the, the team there. And, and the thing that struck me most was this little guy was just like any other happy six-year-old boy with a smile from ear to ear. And it just made me think, well, you know what, it's, this attitude is, of, of people is amazing. So seeing things like that was reassuring as well as, as saddening at times. Yeah. So. What do you recall as where you really were tested from that perspective? I mean, the two things that really, there's one story I'll, I'll tell in a second, but the big thing that really that struck me is the people that work in the hospital, the nursing staff, the doctors there, working in quite trying conditions to compare to what we're used to here in, in South Australia. I mean, they made their own alcohol swabs out of gauze, soaking them in, in alcohol, because they just don't have the money and the infrastructure to do a lot of those things. I mean, things may have changed since I was there 10 years ago, but... Um, I, I did time on surgical, medical ward, and, and also in, the, in, in maternity, where I wanted to get some, some hands-on experience at delivering babies. And uh, one of my afternoon shifts in the maternity ward, the midwife that was on with me was suturing up a, a patient after they'd had their delivery. And this other uh, Nivanuatu woman came in and just said, was saying, baby, come, baby, come. And so I just ushered her over to the uh, delivery bed. And I looked over to my midwife colleague looking for support and she just looked at me, shrugged her shoulders, put her hands up in the air and said, I'm, I'm busy here, you'll have to deal with it. And so the lady up looked, had, a, had a look down in the appropriate area and there was uh, a head full of hair crowning and um, just d- did my first delivery by being the only person available in the room, which was a harrowing but wonderful. I mean, obviously it all went well, so it was a wonderful experience in the end. So Wow, so that is... A baptism of fire, if ever I've heard of one. So when you finally left, having spent that time with the staff and, and the patients that you did in Vanuatu, what was the experience like? How were you farewelled? I mean, I, I came in my last shift with a, with presents for them all to express a small token of my gratitude. And I couldn't believe it when one of the mid- midwives came and gave me a present, a, a handcrafted, beautiful bag that she made and given to me, and, and I've still got it to this day. I, it, you know, it just I was blown away by the fact that they wanted to give me something, even though I felt like they were the ones that were giving me the whole time that I was there. Next up, we'll hear from Dr. Rebecca Morrow, consultant anatomical pathologist here at ClinPath. Uh, welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks for having me. When did your career begin? Um, Well, I did med school straight out of um, high school. So I suppose that was the beginning of my medical career. And um, I trained at UNSW and part of our course was to do straight sciences in the first three years of which pathology was a part. And that was where I discovered pathology. Oh, so many people have had very uh, varied stepping stones zigzagging across the field. Were you lucky enough to have discovered that in that first undergraduate process. I was, yeah. Really, um, it was the one subject that explained how the body really worked and what went wrong with it in a visual way, which uh, connected with me because I'm quite a visual person and a visual learner. So, yeah, understanding what what the basis for disease was really clicked with me. So what are a couple of formative moments or experiences that you've had on this journey? I guess one of the formative things for me was um, being a JMO and realising that the emotional burden of being a JMO, I didn't wish to sustain that long term. And knowing that I had a love for pathology and that I could still be clinical, but without the um, 
everyday toil of dealing with face-to-face patients. Um, that's a big part of my journey into pathology. Mm. Yeah. And then since you've been in this field of pathology, uh, can you share a story or two of your experiences along the way? So a very recent example I had um, was a curatage specimen, which is where um, the gynecologists go in, a patient might have a history of abnormal bleeding or um, some funny imaging on uh, imaging findings, and they go in and they take a sample of the endometrial cavity. Um, and I looked at this, and most of it looked like it should, that, you know, the background endometrium. And just in the corner, there was a bit of tissue that just didn't quite look right. And I, you know, just there was something in the back of my brain that was saying this is not quite right. And you've got to listen to that little alarm bell. And so I thought, oh, I'll just procrastinate on that, think a bit overnight, cut some levels, see what comes out in the deeper levels, cut some levels the next morning, still look the same, and it still wasn't quite right. And I just couldn't quite put my finger on what it was because if it if it was part of the native tissue it would have been a pathological process but the background didn't look pathological so I showed it to a colleague who said oh I think this might actually be you know and and mention what they thought it would be and we worked it up with some further immunohistochemistry which is um, detection of underlying protein expression that can tell you origin of tissue and it turned out that there was contaminant tissue within that block that didn't belong to that patient and so yeah, by a process of working it up properly, we could we could call it what it was, that it wasn't a pathological process, but we had this extra tissue in the block and, yeah, led to the right management for the patient. And just finally, what's another story that just looms large in your memories that might have caught you off guard? Well, uh, this story goes back to my med student days where um, med students often have a list of procedures they have to tick off um, to, you know, reach a certain point to sit their exams and... I was a student attached to the urology team at the time, so uh, spoiler alert, this, you know, urology does involve awkward moments and awkward pieces of anatomy. Um, Anyway, one of the things we had to get ticked off was catheterisation, which is where a plastic tube enables the flow of urine from the inside world to the outside world, say no more. (laughs) And I had gone with my friend to catheterise this um, poor old chap who was on the urology ward. And it was my job to collect all the bits and pieces that you need. So you need your catheter, you need all your equipment to clean the area, you need sterile sheets, you need gloves. I thought I had everything and we're standing in the room and my friend was the one doing the procedure. So she was, she'd, you know, scrubbed up, she had sterile gloves on, um, she'd consented the patient, she'd cleaned the area. She was holding the catheter and she looked at me and she said, where's the lube? Now, I should explain that when you catheterise a patient, <laughs> yes. um, the most humane way that this is done is by this, um, we insert lignocaine jelly, which is, you know, within lube, into the urethra so that it's less painful the patient and the catheter slips in. And I looked at her and I went, I think I forgot the lube. And obviously she's sterile, so she's got to stand there. She can't go anywhere. And, and I raced out of the room to you know go and scramble in the nurse's station and find um, this lignocaine jelly and I came back in and both of them were in fits of laughter and I said well what's what's happened here and and they both caught their breath enough to tell me what had happened in that she had said to this gentleman I'm so sorry sir my friend has forgotten the lube she's going to have to go and get it and you know being med students you kind of forget to do the cordial things like um, leave this poor man in peace while your friend goes and gets the lube and she was standing there holding the catheter and and holding the man's uh, appendage where this catheter was going to need to go and she said something to the effect of 
don't worry, sir, we'll get going in a moment, to which he broke the moment with some humour and said, I don't know if you will, but I certainly will if you don't let go. Oh, gee. <laughs> and I think that was a story that um, as doctors and med students were often put in situations where you're with people in very vulnerable moments, you're with people in moments that are highly embarrassing for them. They're embarrassing for you as well in, you know, in seeing things that would just be unacceptable out in public and there's an element of learning to laugh with the patient and when appropriate of course but using humor to break down those awkwardnesses of, of moments that you have to have as a, a doctor in order to treat your patients so there you go the day i forgot the lube <laughs> As we're exploring in this episode, there's, there's something from all of our pasts, some event, some relationship, some interaction that forms us in some way or stays with us. Dr. Fergus Whitehead, CEO, ClinPath, what's lurking in your past? What do you, when you think back when you're a student or a junior doctor, that is vibrant in your memory? I, I went into medicine because, um, like all uh, children who had two doctors as parents. I was indoctrinated very early in life that medicine would be the thing that I should do. Uh, not because I necessarily actually wanted to do it particularly, but because my parents were very keen on me doing. So I did medicine and I got into uni and I realised university was quite different to school. <laughs> and the great thing about uni- uh, doing a medical degree was six years. So I had six years of university and during my university years after university I got married I had children very early my eldest is now 30 uh, next year and uh, so I sort of went into hibernation with my children but at university I had an absolutely fantastic time I wasn't uh, very academically uh, bent I never really got great marks but I had a fantastic time at uni and but I never failed a year and I was a member of the Cooper's Cup which was um, a drinking team and we never lost when I was in the team and my nickname was Ferg the Funnel (laughs) and I have absolutely fantastic memories of all my mates at uni I still catch up with them now and the the fun times that I had specifically with patients it's interesting you ask that question because um, ending up as a pathologist and when I left medical school I did general practice for about six months and I thought I'm not really a fan of talking to patients every day (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, a lot of patients whinge and I thought, well, I don't really, I mean, I'm being honest with you. And so I decided, look, I'm going to do pathology because it was the one thing uh, during medical school that I enjoyed, looking down the microscope and making a diagnosis. So that's why in the end I ended up uh, being a pathologist. I suppose I went into medicine probably for the wrong reasons, but ended up finding a niche for myself. So that's interesting. So you, by, by having that awareness of perhaps bedside manner not being your strength, uh, you probably saved yourself from sort of grumpily going through a career. I probably did. Um, I'm not, I don't think, I think I probably would have been all right with bedside manner. I just didn't enjoy the clinic, you know, the patient interaction as much as um, others did. And just dovetailing back, you were indoctrinated Mm. in every meaning of the word, even the punished meaning of the word, by your parents. (laughs) Yes. Are there memories, early memories growing up with both parents as doctors of them just not being around or talking about 
uh, things they were hap- having because they would have been facing life or yeah, death. They did. My parents faced life, uh, talked about medicine the whole time, uh, over lunch, over dinner, and constantly talked about the things that they got up to. And they were hard workers and they, they weren't around as much as probably other parents are. So I did grow up with medicine a lot. And my father was a pathologist and so um, he was very <laughs> keen for me to do pathology, but I was determined not to do it <laughs> because he wanted me to do it. And then, interestingly enough, he left Flinders Medical Centre where he was the professor of pathology and he went to uh, Clintpath, <laughs> as it was many years ago. And so he left to go to Clintpath and I thought, oh, well, he's gone from the public system where we do our training, so I thought I'll do pathology. The funny thing about it is that uh, my dad left, uh, worked at Clintpath for a, a long time and left there when he retired uh, after working in the public sector. And then I left university, uh, went and did pathology, essay pathology for a while and then started my own business called Adelaide Pathology. And look where I am now. <laughs> Back, back at Klimpath for all those years. The apple does not fall far from <laughs> well, the clearly. tree. No. Last thing, yes. a word to any medical students at the moment or people deciding whether or not to pursue that pathway. Um, I, look, I would encourage anyone wanting to do medicine to, uh, if it's part of their dream, to really go for it because there are many different parts of medicine you can get involved in. You can do research, you can be a a doctor like me who spends all day looking down a microscope diagnosing things. You can deal with children, you can deal with all sorts of different diseases. So I would encourage you to follow that dream if that's what you want to do because it provides you with a, a wide range of possibilities and a stable income. And I promise this is the actual last question. Yes. In this current era of social media chatter yes. and conspiracy theories, yes. the institution of medicine has been knocked off its pedestal by many in the population. They just think big pharma, everyone's, you know, on the tag. Yes. That must be a different experience for someone now coming in to look at this as a career because the world's so murky and messy. Do you see a way forward from this? How do we remind people that there is an evidence base to this field that is worthy of respect? I mean, medicine, the, the science of medicine has been built up over hundreds of years. And, and now, if you look at the information explosion that's occurring, particularly with molecular pathology and molecular study of diseases and particularly, particular cancer, there's going to be huge advances over the next 20 years, uh, particularly in the treatment of, of malignancy. So really with medicine, I think it's about focusing on the good that can be done and and uh, I mean, pathology is an industry where it's always tainted by it's just for the money. It's all about making money. Well, it's at the end of the day with medicine, it's about it's about the patient looking after the patient and making sure you do the right thing by the patient. And whatever you make as a profit beyond that is a function of you've done the best thing for the patient. That's the way I look at it, and I think that's the way everyone else should. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Music